Recently, I was thrilled and delighted to have such an entertaining and fascinating chat with the philosopher, jazz musician, and renowned cheese historian, Ned Palmer. He's author of the Sunday Times Book of the Year, A Cheesemonger's History to the British Isles, and Ned makes it clear that every single cheese has its own unique story. In his recent book, Ned takes us on a mouth-watering journey across Britain and Ireland to uncover the histories of our beloved old favourites like Cheddar and Wensleydale, to exciting new innovations you might never have heard of like Irish Cashel Blue or the splendid Renegade Monk. Ned works with Lathwaite's, the Scottish Malt Whiskey Society, the British Epicurean Society and various London craft brewers to bring audiences delicious surprises and pairings alongside eccentric, eclectic and esoteric stories of the makers of great British cheeses, both ancient and modern. On the back of our chat, I placed a rush order for a hunk of fabulous Gorwig Caffili and Colston Bassett Stilton. Mmm, absolutely scrummy delicious. Well, why would I let the grass go under my feet just before Christmas and in lockdown? If you love cheese and the history of the British Isles, then this episode is quite delightful. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. I've got a special offer for you. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that at the end of each interview, we ask our guests to tell us one or two of their favourite places in London that is personal to them and perhaps not everybody knows about. Well, I've now compiled for you 60 of my guests' favourite places in London, and you can get this unique brochure 100% free. Alongside each guest recommendation is a brief quote explaining why they love the place, a lovely picture of it, plus links to the venue and the podcast episode itself so you can check it out in your own time. It's completely free, and all you have to do is go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com on the homepage and click on the red button where it says Guests' Favourite Places in London. Click here for your free copy. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did creating it for you. Keep listening. Best wishes and keep safe. Steve. Well, I'm delighted to welcome to the show today, to your London legacy, the one and only cheesemonger, Ned Palmer, author of A Cheesemonger's... Monkers? I can't even speak and I haven't even been drinking yet. <laughs> a Cheesemonger's History of the British Isles. Ned, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me, Steve. Not at all. How are you doing? Good, yeah. I've got plenty of cheese in the fridge. Got some nice wine. So it's basically fine. As a sort of as long as I've got some cheese and some nice drop of booze somewhere, it's basically all right. Yes. So lock lockdown isn't a problem for someone like you, as long as you got a, a fridge full of cheese and or No, I mean it's it's a sort of sensitive topic, but um I've been writing books, you know, more more than sort of talking about cheese and I actually started off on another one during lockdown. So basically all it is is that my friends can't force me to come out. And I can just sit at my desk and write and eat cheese. And do, I've been doing some online cheese tastings, actually, which is really nice, really fun. So, no, it's kind of it's all right, really. Yeah, quiet. Yeah, it looks good. It, it looks really good. I actually just watched one of your uh, online cheese sessions where you said you were going to stick to half an hour. And you went on for an hour at least. Oh, such nonsense. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that was it, just terrible. You're one of the most passionate men I've come across you're when good, it comes to cheese. Yes. Well, that's very sweet. Brevity is not really been my strong point historically i did a bit of a book tour before christmas and the basically the site that i got used to is the site of the organizer standing at the back looking frenziedly at their watching <laughs> up at me again and start to do that throat cutting thing you know like that a lot and the first chapter of cheesemonger's history i sent to my agent he's a very nice man and 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 he wrote back his book it's very good ned it's it's a little bit longer 
than we said, because we said 10,000 words, and it's actually, well, it's 20,000 words, Ned. Could you cut it a bit? So, yeah, brevity, terrible at that. Yeah, and I bet you get longer and longer the more you drink and the more, the more cheese you have to taste. So much, yeah, so much. Yeah, fantastic. So you are, you hail from Rotherhithe, I believe. Is that where you presently live, or where, where, where are you from originally? I'm from Putney. Oh, Putney, so you're still a London boy. Yeah, I, I live in Rotherhithe now, in, in, in Bermondsey. Rotherhithe is in Bermondsey, isn't it? That's more correct, yeah. Yeah, my folks are from New Zealand too, so I'm sort of, I don't really know what I am. Because I sort of detected, when I've listened to your voice before, some sort of, I don't know, sort of West Country accent coming through. <laughs> am I wrong? <laughs> well, there's a lot. There's, okay, so one of the reasons for that, I reckon, is that the reason I'm a cheesemonger is a fella called Todd Trithowan. And as much as he's from Wales, he's, 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 Trithowan's a Cornish name, and he's very West Country. And because he's my first monger, you know, and, and that's where I became. Probably when I talk about cheese in particular, I start getting more toddish. You know, I fell out, you know, boy, yeah, like that. I see. Okay. Well, Rotherhithe is a place that's been pretty close to my heart in doing this podcast. I visited there. I assume you know the Mayflower Pub? Yes. Yeah. I got taken there around about this time last year, actually, by a good friend of mine and one of the first guests on the show, a lovely chap called Jason Sandy. He's one of the country's foremost mudlarkers. And we went mudlarking on the uh, the foreshore there. Yeah. Because that is where the Mayflower set sail from 400 years ago, pretty much to the month. It's to, so cool, isn't it? It's such a cool place. And the Mayflower pub is wonderful. Yeah. It's a really cool place. And actually, my missus, who is a, a writer of historical fiction, has been on the mudlarking. And there can't be that many mudlarkers. So it might have been your man there and she came back with a metric ton of bits of clay pipe and lovely bits of, of tile and and nails and she she will know jason then she's bound to know jason yeah ab- absolutely so rather high there's a cool place and that's where you're based and before you got into cheesemongering i understand you're a musician a jazz musician no less <laughs> Yeah, you don't. You never really stop being a jazz musician, though, do you? I mean, it's a sort of. Well, I yeah, I started playing the piano when I was really little, when I was about six, and and but also my dad was playing jazz music, and I thought I want to play that. You know, I was really into it right from the beginning, and I was dead lucky because the first stuff I listened to was stuff like really old boogie woogie and Fats Waller, Louis Armstrong, and blues, and it was like going through the development of jazz in a way. So I have always been keen on that. And I actually, I never really made any money out of it, which is unsurprising, isn't it? You know, and when I turned up at Neil's Yard Dairy, which is my first proper cheese shop where I worked, I had this interview and they're all like, well, are you going to stay, Ned? And I said, oh, well, no, well, I'm about to get signed. So, you know, I'll probably only be here a few months. And they yeah. sort of chuckled <laughs> into their collars because like everyone, and I later on had that experience of interviewing people. and People always go, oh, yeah, I'm just here for a bit, you know, and then they have some cheese and that's it. You're over. So, so I, yeah, I, I still play, and I also, um, um, cons- I believe that cheese and jazz have a lot of connections. That there's a si- there's a lot of similarity between cheese and jazz. Is that the sort of the smoky jazz cafe, sitting down, listening to a bit of sax, you know, with a piece of cheese and a glass of wine, and just chilling with a fat cigar? <laughs> Is that sort of going <laughs> back? Well, for me, there's a couple of things. One is that there's a sort of sensibility when you when you look after cheese, which is the thing I used to do, and it's an actual job looking up ripening cheese and looking after it. And I never knew that was a real job until I was sent into the cellar for my first go at it. 
Now, the French call this affinage, um, and the British are not civilised enough to have a term for it, so we borrow in it. So I was doing this affinage business, and my boss then is a bloke called Bill Oglethorpe, who's the sort of Yoda to my Luke Skywalker of cheese. And um, I was doing some stuff, and he said, why are you doing that? And I said, well, because we did this last week, Bill. And he says, well, you have to, have to do it differently. Look at the cheese, touch it, it's all different. And and it was quite frustrating, this thing. And I said, why can't we just do it the same every time? And he said, well, Ned, if you don't play with your cheese, it'll play with you. <laughs> Which is the best thing anyone's ever said. But it kind of, it, it, when you play a jazz tune, you always try and play it in a different way because you wouldn't want to do it all the same. And, and when you make cheese or look after it, it always sort of... So in a way, for me, that sensibility is similar. I also believe that there are flavours in cheese that are analogous to certain jazz chords. And I've been trying for years to get someone to let me do a cheese tasting where I play you certain chords and feed you bits of cheese. And, and you know, and you have the same experience. But no one's ever booked me for that one yet. I can't think why. Are there any songs about cheese? Well, there's, there's uh, the famous Monty Python sketch about cheese, but is there any, are there any songs or musical pieces written about cheese? Well, I, I don't know. But he used to do a tasting called All Blues, which is a very famous Miles Davis tune. I don't think he meant that it was about Silton or anything. I doubt it. No, I yeah. And so that was all about that. And I, and I also want to do a whiskey and cheese tasting called Whiskey and Blues, which would obviously be all blue cheeses. And then for each whiskey and cheese pairing, you would have a different blues song. And they would characterise... Like you have a, if you're going to have some Cabrales and some really intense PTI Lamont would be like one of those really dark Robert Johnson blues from the thirties. So I'm not really answering your question. I'm just saying what I like talking about. No, but I, there's, there's certainly something there for the future, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> People talk about cheesy tunes though, don't they? You know, that's really cheesy music. Yes. Cheesy pop. So cheesy, there is yes. some connection. They do. There must be some, some heritage in that somewhere, I guess. So music, jazz wasn't going to be your lifesaver from a career point of view. So you, you, you stumbled into cheese making. Tell us how you, you fell into uh, a vat fell of cheese. Fell into a vat of cheese, yeah. <laughs> like Obelix, but with cheese and a bit skinnier. Not that much skinnier, yeah. though. That's something, I mean, that's something else I wanted to ask you. How come you're not fat? You can't see me properly. All right, we'll come on to that. Um, should, should we do fat or cheese first? What do do, them, do um, them vat of cheese. How you fell into okay. vat of cheese. So literally, the reason I'm a cheesemonger is because I ate a piece of cheese. And it was uh, it's cheese called Chathawan Score with Kefili, and it's made by my friend Todd Chathawan. Well, I used to work in the theatre, and in fact, I went to live in Australia to set up a sort of small avant-garde theatre company with my then partner and rapidly discovered that you can't make a living doing small avant-garde theatre. But I was working in mainstream theatre and I came back here because I was between jobs, or we call it resting in the theatre, it means being unemployed. And, and Todd said, why not come and sell cheese with me at, at the stall? And I'd never done anything like this before. Winter of 2000, and I came down and, and he said, you better try some cheese. And I had this bit of gore with Caffili and I realised that all the cheese I'd ever had before in my life was rubbish. It was a real moment. And I just did not know that cheese could be that complex, that delicious, that fascinating. And also, we only sold one cheese. He only made one cheese on his farm. And every week he'd bring it down and it would be a bit different, look different and taste different. And it was just so fascinating. And after a while, he said, listen, fella, I'll get you a job at Neil's Yard Dairy, famous British cheese shop, if you stop bothering me. Because I was just obsessed, you know. What is that? What's that? What's that like that, Todd? What's that? So he did. 
and that was that was 20 years ago and on before then i'd really never stuck a job longer than a couple of years um so so it was eating so i want to say as a sort of public service announcement to your listeners be careful you eat a really nice piece of cheese you don't know what's going to happen this that's sort of i can see where you get that from actually because having read having read your book which we'll we'll touch upon shortly I was tempted to go and buy all the cheeses that you talk about in the book and some of the recommendations at the back. It is working. <laughs> it is working. And I started off ordering one piece of cheese. And the first one I ordered was that Gourd Kefili. Oh, good. And I oh, polished brilliant. it off. It didn't, it didn't last very long. I have to be perfectly frank with you. It's nice, isn't it? It's absolutely delicious. Um, and I can honestly say it bore absolutely zero resemblance to any Kefili I have ever had in my life. Because the kafili I grew up with at home, with my parents back in the uh, 70s, I'm guessing, was a, a white sort of crumbly monstrosity, which tasted zero to, to what that gourd kafili is. So is one real and one unreal? Is one a different recipe or one, one a different manufacturing process? What's the difference? That's a really good question. I need to unlimber my philosophy for the is kafili real or not debate. And that was exactly the same thing for me that any kafili I'd had before comes in a block from the supermarket and it's it's very pale white and it very crumbly. You breaks apart into crumbs and doesn't really taste of a great deal. So when I saw this Gorith kafili that and tasted it, you know, it's quite an eye opening moment. The stuff that we had in the seventies made in a factory, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing inherently wrong with that kind of cheese. It's certainly cheaper and, um, you know, we need to have food that everyone can afford. It's just a different experience. The recipe is, I guess, different. There's a lot different in... I mean, so to begin with, Todd is using unpasteurised milk. So this is when you pasteurise milk, you heat it to 70 degrees centigrade, 15 seconds, if you really want to know. Uh, and you kill all the natural bacteria in the milk, and then you add your bacteria that, that start, we call starter culture, that starts the cheese making. If you use raw milk and pasteurized milk, you tend to get more complexity, different, lots more different flavors. You get the, the taste of the farm where you make it. The, I don't mean that, you know, that smell of a farm. I mean the taste of the land, of that soil, of that area. The French call that terroir. We don't have that word in English, so we we borrow that so there's that it's very handmade you need to be gentle with when you make cheese if you want to make really creamy cheese you need to be very gentle with the milk so a lot of what they do they do by hand stirring starter culture into milk do it by hand breaking up the curd very gentle and they get this amazing creamy texture which you know in the in the filly you had in the 70s you don't have that because it's in great big vats and metal stirrers so it's different tech I mean, a sort of simple message is I don't think you can make really amazing cheese to an economy of scale. I haven't seen it yet. They're different things. So there's that. In terms of what's real or not, I discovered in in the early 2000s you can basically age people by whether they think Gorwith is kafili or not. And if they were over a certain age, they would say this lovely thing, oh, that, that's what it used to be like when I was a kid. It's 20 years ago, you know, there aren't so many of those people around. But you do, you would get that and they'd be super excited. And then you get people who go, that's not kafili, because, you know, they, they recognise what you recognise. And it's quite an amusing moment because you're trying to do English politeness, but you are standing in front of a great big sign that says, Chathown School with kafili. you got a fella who looks eminently rural, Todd does, you know, a bit Welsh standing. And they're going, it's not kafili. And you think, I don't know how to do this politely, really, but... You know, going back to philosophy and epistemology, you know, trusting your sources and things. I am standing here. So it's, so what something is, is quite interesting. 
So how, how ancient is Kefili as a, as a cheese itself? How far back does that go? Well, so you're asking me the great questions, and it's probably with each of your questions we could do an hour on it. So in one sense, the easy, simple answer is at some point in the 19th century, and there is a specific date in the book, but I've basically forgotten pretty much all the dates from the book now. But in the 19th century, there's a particular chap, fairly sure his first name was Edward, and he started grading Caffili for the market in Caffili, or rather he started grading cheese for this market in Caffili. And if he said it's good enough, it would get a stamp and it said, you know, Caffili cheese or something. So in one sense, as far as I understand, that's the first time you start seeing this word Caffili, the phrase Caffili cheese, and also that someone took it upon themselves to say, this is the standard for Caffili. This is what I expect to taste. This is good Caffili and bad. And he'd have been getting his cheese from, you know, rural areas around the city of Caffili coming in. So in a way, there's that. But then if you talk to uh, sort of other, well, I don't know if they're cheese instruments. I talked to a wonderful woman called Erwin Richards, who's a, a sort of cheese teacher and judge. And she said, well, you know, people would have been making cheese like this for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years. It's a sort of simple style. It's, not, it's a, quite techy, but it's fair. You wouldn't need that much kit. She made it with her mum in the 40s, I think, in, you know, sort of in a very simple dairy, mostly for just for the kitchen. And you just think, well, it's the kind of cheese people would have made. So maybe hundreds of years, maybe thousands. She also said a really cool thing. She said, People wouldn't necessarily said this is Caffili. It's just that the better cheese, the better cheese makers, their cheese would have made it to Caffili Market, and Old Ed, or whatever he was called, would have graded it. And like sort of a process of natural selection, the better cheese makers, the cheese they produce would have become the thing people call Caffili. And then maybe people tried to copy it. I see. So there you are. You've given up jazz. You've thrown into uh, a mass of cheese. You, just, you decided this is how you, how you want to progress your career. So just talk us through your progression in, in the cheese. So it's quite easy to become a cheesemonger, but the first thing is you've got to like cheese because the next thing that you have to do is eat a lot of cheese. On the stall, I was just selling one cheese. But for one thing, I had Todd. So we talked... You know, all weekend we'd talk about the cheese making and I would understand it and learn about it. You need to be curious, I think, to be a cheesemonger. And we learned cutting cheese into nice, neat pieces, wrapping these, you know, key skills to cut. Someone says 250 grams, you want to be able to cut, you know, 300 is about your maximum margin of error. Uh, <laughs> and wrapping and, and things like that. But the big thing, I think, really was when I went to Neil's Dairy, because then you've got, I think there were 60 cheeses on the counter. And the first thing you do every morning when you come in on retail is to taste all the cheese because they ripen all the time or you're moving on to a new batch. So you have to make sure that what you're tasting, you know, what you're describing to customers is what's on the counter. So you're tasting this cheese all the time, talking to your fellow mongers about it. The dairy was very much a kind of sink or swim culture. So I got put on this thing called cheese shift very quickly. And the thing about me, perhaps specifically, is I'm a bit of an ass. So I saw my name on this rotor and it said Ned Cheese. And I went to see Fiona, who's HR. If you're listening, Fiona, sorry about this. But I went to see Fiona and I was like, you know, this is a cheese shop, Fiona. And she sort of go down to the cellar, Ned. And I went down and there's Bill and there's all this cheese. And I learned to look after cheese. And you had many different styles in this one small cellar that you have to keep an eye on and ripen you turn them you rub them pat them and wash them but quite soon 
within weeks, I would just be left to my own devices in the cellar and just have to figure it out. And it's quite instinctive. You touch something, you think it's very dry. I don't really want that to be that dry. So I'll put it somewhere a bit wetter. It's a bit like cooking. It wasn't exactly a formal training with, you know, milestones other than eat lots of cheese. Don't make a mess of the cheese when you cut it. You know, get fairly fit, have a certain instinct and really love it, I think. When we interviewed people, when I became one of the governors, you know, well, at least one of the sort of some <laughs> deputy managers, no one's ever come from a background in cheese, ever. I think we met one person who actually came from this background. So the first thing you say is, do you like food? And then you look at them and you look at how enthusiastic they look. Because if someone goes, oh, I quite like food, then they're not... They're not going to have a nice time, but they're like, oh my God, I had this amazing pork belly. Then you're like, yeah, he'll do. Yeah. Yeah, that really. And when you wash a lot of racks, you wash a lot of racks. When I arrived for my first date, for my for my interview, the, the first thing after tasting a load of cheese, I said, oh, do you mind washing some racks? And I went in, it's Rumpelstiltskin, there's a pile of 150 really horrible wire racks covered in mould. And I thought, this is that deal where I do a menial job and show that I can do it with good grace and do it really well. And I thought, great. And the other thing I thought is, if that is one of the first criteria for having this job, I want it. Because that's what I want. I want to be like that, you know. So whenever we were ch- trialing people, we'd save a load of really gnarly racks for them to wash and see how they did. Because <laughs> reading the book, making cheese is quite a physically demanding process, isn't it? I mean, it's the making, the, the turning. I don't, I don't know what the expression you call it when you're, dunking your arms up to your shoulders and bending over the vats and all that. And then once they're made, they're turning them and not basting them. What do you call them? Washing them. Washing them, There's there's so many different elements to it, which are very, very physical. They are. Back-breaking work. It is. It really is. And even, so that would be obvious if you think of a cheddar, and a traditional cheddar weighs 24 kilos. So when you're turning, if you turn 100 cheddars on a set of shelves, you know you've done some work. But even a tiny little goat's cheese, like a little door stone is a few inches high, the ladling of the getting the milk into the vat, the ladling of curd out of the vat, the turning of hundreds of tiny things, that's all very physical too. Quite a knackering. And, and it's one of those, lots of those jobs take a lot of skill and elegance so that when you're good at them, it's not so much work. But when you're a dilettante cheesemaker, which is what I always have been and always will be, I'm not really a cheesemaker, I'm a cheese mungo vastly better at talking about cheese and making it but i would go and work with my friend mary holbrook when she was in her late 70s and by the end of the day i'd be a broken man and mary was skipping around like one of her young goats totally unbothered but yeah it's pretty knackering why is mary so important to to you in the history of cheese making the british arms because you've actually dedicated your book to her haven't you yeah she was she gave me the idea for the book unwittingly in that I was down there making cheese with her. And the first thing is her farm was a small mixed farm, which is just impossible. No, no one can make money out of a small mixed farm anymore. I wonder why, you know, how this worked other than she sold cheese to add value. But if you read the descriptions of Neolithic farms and prehistoric mixed farms in Somerset, it sounds like that. And I also thought she made a cheese called Slate Lips, the first season, but it's a very simple, low-tech style of cheese. And I thought one day, God, if a prehistoric cheesemaker came into Mary's dairy, she'd recognise what Mary was doing. Admittedly, it's stainless steel and plastic, and the old cheesemaker would have been, look how easy it is to wash. But it would have been the same. And so that continuity was something that I really loved. 
Mary was instrumental in the great cheese renaissance of the 70s. She's one of the doyens of that. Some people called her the godmother of British goat's cheese, which I think she would have just <laughs> laughed at. <laughs> That's a title and a half. It's a hell of a title. <laughs> yeah. So, so she was very important in that great cheese renaissance. And she, apart from Todd, she was my first cheese maker. She was the first person actually went and made cheese with. I never got around to it with Todd back then. Um, quite early on, and that was very much the Niels Yardairi thing, they spotted that I was quite into this, you know, and so they sent me off for a couple of weeks to live on a farm and make cheese. Very, very... So there's a strong emotional thing about that, your first bit of cheese making. Yeah, no, that, can't, that comes through quite clearly in the book. So let's talk about the book, uh, and, the, and the structure of the book is interesting, because there's loads of books on the history of the British Isles, but I've never come across one that sees it through the prison of cheesemaking. <laughs> and it, it, it sheds a whole different light on, on history. And it, it's fascinating because it, it does put into context all the changes that we were going through in the British Isles from cheesemaking went on in Neoly Neolithic times. And well, I didn't know I until didn't. I started researching the book. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you break the book down cunningly into different sort of um, historical areas themes time frames so you've got neolithic and you've got like well, what the romans ever done for us which is <laughs> which is nice uh you got that sort of monty python-esque sort of style to it then you've got the monks uh, and then you've got the dark ages is it the dark mid uh, medieval times plowmans at time you've got the pre-war post-war the, the the cheese renaissance which is talking about the post in the 70s and then the, the bit you've you've coined i think the phrase is it the post postmodernist postmodern cheese post modern cheese post, yeah. post modern cheese i love it. i love that so how do we know there was cheese making going on in neolithic times what what evidence so is there to support that a really cool bit of evidence that's both techy and elegant which i love for a long time we thought the romans taught the british how to make cheese and the Romans were quite contemptuous about our dairying capabilities. This, this guy called Strabo said, oh, those Celts are only know They've got butter, but they don't even bother to make cheese. They eat their parents instead or something. It's really contemptuous. So it was, I know, it's around 2011, I think, uh, that a team at Bristol under a fellow called Dr. Evershed figured out a way of identifying fat residues on bits of pottery which may not sound that interesting to normal people but when i found out about this i was like shouted with joy because it seems that the most likely thing that these fat traces these dairy fat traces were were for residues of cheese making so they developed the tech to tell the difference between dairy fat and animal fat and one thing is that around the time most adult humans were lactose intolerant, the vast majority. Basically, all of us now who can drink milk are kind of mutants. But when you turn milk into cheese, you make it much more digestible for a lactose intolerant person. You, you can, I mean, I tell my lactose intolerant friends this, you can eat all cheese, there's no lactose in cheese, or there's such a little trace amount, it won't affect you. So it seemed to me then, if you can't drink milk, what would be the point in having containers full of milk unless you were converting it into cheese? would be one argument for why people were, were making cheese. They had been, and previous to this, there was the thing I rather like, I found it elegant, was was if you look at the bone record, the bones of the animals you find, the cattle and goats that you find in, in Neolithic sites in Britain and Ireland, they're largely female and they're older, which suggests you're keeping them for milk. Otherwise, because you slaughter them, you don't need the male calves when you're dairyans, you don't tend to keep them very long. But that's not a direct proof. It's just a theory. And so there were a few archaeologists around saying, I bet we made cheese here for ages. You know, but it wasn't until Evershed 
turned up with that tech to to identify the dairy traces that they were able to say you know must be cheese making and also they find these in in ireland and in scotland you know once they found that tech they went out and found these traces all over the place so I, that's my you know i found that tremendously fascinating i always find it remarkable how how we think how things how the neolithic folk of the day or the romans have ever thought of making cheese i mean it's one thing to discover that they made cheese but what what's the thought process they went through <laughs> okay here's a cow <laughs> i'm gonna do this yeah let's yeah. make some cheese <laughs> yeah how, they, how does it get well i don't know because i can't go back in time and i would you know if i could get a time machine i'd go back to what's now turkey about nine thousand years ago when you find the first evidence of cheese making i'd go back there and have a good look and see what they were doing be really curious you know everyone else wants to go back and stop hitler i'd be straight back to the cheese making personally if the time machines so there are a lot of theories but i the most likely thing to me is it was an accident some milk soured now if all that time ago so the origins of cheese making maybe about nine thousand years ago if at that time everyone's lactose intolerant you're raising goats for meat there's all this milk you can't drink it it's really annoying you want that nutrition if you could have it someone notices that if the milk's been sitting around for a while and sours you can eat it it doesn't make you sick because the lactose is being converted into lactic acid so i reckon you know humans are inquisitive quite clever ingenious and quite hungry so soured milk seems to be okay i better drink lots of milk and see what you know what milk can i drink what goes okay and some of this got a bit thicker and that seems quite nice. Wow, I'd like to get rid of all that boring liquid and just have the solid. Maybe I could drain it with a cloth or some... Maybe I'll get this bit of clay and put some holes in it. And you end up with people using rennet and making blue cheese and wash wine cheeses and smoking your cheeses. But you can see a progression if you don't imagine it all happened at once. It is incredible to think that by getting some bacteria and adding it to milk and then adding an enzyme called rennet which you either get from a from a ruminant animal or you derive from a fungus in a lab you know and salt and that all of that seems quite magical if you think of it all in one go but you can see how that would have progressed when you, when you put it like that and you see it in stages uh through changes in culture and changes in manufacturing processes and and philosophies and so on and so forth you can see how things can can develop but but when you actually think of who was the first person to make cheese and why, why do they do it? And what's, what's the thought process behind it? Now, now, now you've said it. That's why you're the expert and I'm not. So <laughs> <that's> <laughs> that makes nice perfect sense. <laughs> Let's take a very quick break just to remind you, if you love the show and would like to get involved, grab some cool stuff, get shout outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or you meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger. Just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. I love some of the anecdotes you cut. You, well, the, the true anecdotes that, that you come up with here. T tell us a bit about some of the, the riots and the fighting that went on in, uh, was it the Middle Ages and uh, people being hung, drawn and quartered and warehouses being attacked for the cheese and all these things. You're of... putting a few things together, but um, my favourite story in the book is is the Great Cheese War of 1766. The Great... Just say that slowly. The Great I know. Cheese War. The Great Cheese War of 1766. <laughs> you know, you've got no, the War of Roses know. and Civil Wars. You've got yeah. the Great Cheese War. This one's much more fun. And, and one of the lovely things about research I, I 
discovered is that you come across stuff by accident. You're not necessarily looking for stuff. So I was not looking for the great cheese one. I was in the the rare books and manuscripts reading room at the British Library. It's a very quiet room. And I was reading something else. I can't even remember where I found this thing. And then I found this reference to it. And I honestly just got up and yelled with joy. And I think I might have given heart attacks to a few of the elderly academics in there. I just happened across it. In fact, it's in a really lovely pamphlet by a local historian from, I think, Nottinghamshire. Because it happened in Nottinghamshire. If they're around, thank you. I'd love to meet them and buy them a pint. Because it's a lovely bit of research. So, it, so there are a lot of wars... The other thing that I really noticed, and I have read a bit of history before, is that basically going to war with the French was a national pastime for the British until, you know, the Crimean War, when all the British generals kept talking about the French and their aides had to say, no, it's the Russians, sir, the French are next to you. But um, so we were at war in the Great uh, Seven Years' War, which ended in 1766 uh, and was a big victory for the British, but cost a lot of money. So it ha- all had to be paid for in tax and what usually one taxes the poor because that's the thing to do. So all the food prices went up and the poor were really grumpy about this. And the poor in the 18th century are just not to be messed with. They, you know, they were quite hard. <laughs> and there were a lot of food riots at the time. But also the other thing was that the economy was really growing. And what was happening was wholesalers were going into towns, buying up produce and then taking it away to sell to London or to sell to another big city. And people didn't like this. They weren't used to that. They were used to going to the, their town market and buying the food for their for what they wanted at the price they were used to. So the cheese war broke out in Nottingham when a bunch of rude lads, and they're actually called rude lads back then, like, like 18th century <laughs> rude, rude boys. boys. I know, I loved it. I just kept chuckling. I think I got chucked out in the end. They, they just surrounded a cheesemonger and said, you're going to have to sell your cheese for the old price. And forced him to. And and they just got more and more boisterous and they ended up rolling cheeses off down the street. They must have been quite big. I think they're like wheels of Red Leicester, quite large. And they knocked over the mayor with a rolling cheese and in That is it. just hysterical, but <laughs> Yes, it's and it but it gets better in that so the the, the, the mayor of you know, the authorities got the militia out who are armed, you know, and they started shooting into the crowd and they killed someone. But the thing is, Paul William was actually a farmer looking after his cheese. So that's um cheese-related friendly fire, which is, I think, the first and last time that's happened. There was cheese river piracy. There were armed convoys taking cheese between. During the cheese rioting season that became a thing, there would be armed convoys protecting the cheese, taking it from town to town, and they would be raided. But the best thing was the siege. So they found this that these cheese rioters found a warehouse full of cheese and they besieged it. And 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 uh, they were they were driven off with grape shot which is giant shotguns. You know, if you've ever seen yeah. a Napoleonic weapon that would cause absolutely awful yeah, very destruction. destructive, yeah. Really destructive. And so there's two things that makes me think. One, they really wanted this cheese if they were trying to advance under grape shot. Two, I reckon they're all demobbed squaddies because the only people who know how to advance under fire and just not get shredded would be squaddies. So I think they'd like deep bump bunch of demobbed soldiers from the Seven Years' War out there to get some cheese, you know. And they and they didn't make it. They were driven off, and the owner got a cheese posse together and um, and <laughs> hunted these blokes down to a nearby village, which is Castle Donington. You know where they have the heavy metal. So I don't know what that's got to do with anything, but it amuses me. But the local JP wouldn't do anything. He's kind of on the riotous side. And eventually, these blokes managed to get back into the warehouse, drove off the cheese protectors, and took the cheese, took it back to the village 
where the vicar rang the church bells and the local landlord broached a big cask of ale. So they were obviously in on it and well up for it as well. And this rioting went on for days. They were finally brought the dragoons in, which are heavy cavalry, like, like big blokes on big horses, you know, for getting rid of Napoleon's troops and things like that. And um, people had to go into hiding. People disappeared forever. Some people were transported for stealing cheeses. That's the great cheese. Well, that's my favourite story. Everything from there is downhill now. There's quite a lot of cheese and war in this book in that. So at the beginning of the First World War, there wasn't enough food. So many blokes volunteered that there just wasn't enough food. And there was rioting in the, some of the camps. And there's one riot when, when the sergeant told the men he was taking away their cheese ration. And then they had a riot. And one of them got really badly injured because they were hit with a massive block of cheese. <laughs> Who knew cheese was so instrumental to fighting and violence well, no. in this country? Didn't have a clue. And pivotal points of history, yeah. Absolutely pivotal. But it was also very important. <laughs> as you said, for, for rations to the army during wartime as well. Um, so tell us a little bit about that, because there were tiny little rations, weren't they? Unless you were vegetarian, they, I think you had a slightly larger. Yeah. Well, there's two bits to the rationing, and there's a story I don't get to tell enough, because I actually find it kind of moving. But So, yeah, in World War Two, the ration for everyone was really small. And in the worst bit, I think it was 42, when things were looking quite grim, it was, I think, an ounce a week. It was a really tiny amount. But in... In the First World War, they um, they would bring the cheese ration up to the front. I mean, obviously not only the cheese ration. They did bring other food too, but they'd bring it up to the front. And they hadn't brought any cheese cutters or anything. And so it would just come in a lump, and it's really hard to divide it up. So there's one bit, this bloke in this memoir said, so what we'd do is we'd just draw cards, and like the three highest cards got the piece of cheese and shared it between... The three of them, and I just have this image of them, you know, in a trench with the whiz bangs going overhead, just sharing out this little bit of cheddar. It's, it's a bit black Irish, isn't it? It's so, totally. I mean, it's very hard. After you've watched a fair bit of Black Adder, which I have, it's difficult to not see all history through that that lens. But the, the rationing thing in World... The thing with World War II is it was bad for a number of reasons, obviously. It was a bad time for everyone. But it, it, we nearly lost all our great artisanal cheese in Britain as a result of the war, because the Ministry of Food decided, partly because the ration was so tiny, you can only cut that tiny piece if you have a really hard, dry, acidic cheese. And so they, all the cheeses had to be like that. So any of the soft cheeses were banned for the period of the war. Stilton was banned. They weren't allowed to make it. So they went over to making hard cheese in the Stilton dairies. And we just lost a lot of, I think they were probably tens hundreds of tiny little local varieties you know that old mrs smith made and sold in a market somewhere that just just disappeared the really happy story is the saving of wensleydale by an amazing fellow called kit calvert and if you start traveling you get to yorkshire and say kit calvert in a cheese tasting everyone cheers but he should be more famous because wensleydale was a soft creamy cheese and it was going to be banned and he was just so heroically intransigent that he just wouldn't let them ban it. And he got people to change the recipe to make a harder cheese. And he just kept cheese making going in the Dales throughout the war, which is just really lovely. And they all pulled together. So these people who'd been com com competitors pulled their stuff. So when one dairy was actually bombed by the Luftwaffe, a Wensleydale making dairy, and was, was, was really bad damage for it. So everyone else chipped in, you know, and kept them going throughout until they could fix it up. So it, it was a it was a tough time, but you know the cheese survived, and then people went back to cheese making after the war. And 
And now we're in a situation where, because the cheese market and people's taste for cheese has fluctuated, obviously, through generations and through different cultures. And as you say, we're on a bit of a downer after the war. And then we had the onset of um, wonderful supermarkets and importing cheap cheeses from abroad in America who aren't famed for their uh, wonderful cheeses, although I think you say there are one or two decent cheeses. But today, I think things are improving in, in the cheese world. Well... I mean, you know, I finished the book on quite an upbeat note, and then COVID. Oh, you're not, so, oh I was going to say you're not going to you're not going to spoil it. Spoil the ending. Yeah. Happy ending. Right? No, no, yeah. I mean it. Is, is that is that seriously? Is that going to destroy um, the artisanal cheese making? Well, I mean, who knows what the future will hold? But the first round of it, the lockdown, when that first happened, I was a lot of us were very worried, and and sales just dropped absolutely dropped off for the cheesemakers because they were selling a lot of stuff to wholesale and a lot of that was going to restaurants so people some some people sales dropped by 90 percent and you had cheesemakers who are the last living people who make these traditional cheeses and, and and they're bastions a real cultural treasure and they were talking about stopping and not just not being able to continue like next week ned i just don't see how i can do it you know so that was really worrying. And honestly, this is sound terrible, but at the beginning of lockdown, I was lying awake at night and I wasn't worrying about my mum because she's in New Zealand now. She's pretty safe. It's got, you know, New Zealand's like the best country. So I wasn't worrying about my mum. I was worrying about cheese and whether it was all going to be okay and how much would survive. But the lovely thing was oh, the people came together. A lot of us in the cheese community made a fuss. And we, there's some brilliant people like the Cheese Academy, a lovely man called Pat McGuigan set up this great british cheese festival online and we did bits for that and the british public and the irish public really stepped up and just bought loads of cheese it's quite a simple thing to do they just bought loads of cheese bought it online bought it straight from dairies bought it from small shops and people sales went right up really swiftly and the people who were looking like going out of business were doing as well as ever so this is a long way of saying now we're in another lockdown and I could be worried, except that I know that the lovely British and Irish people do realise what a treasure they have and they are up for protecting it. Also, the great thing is you can do that by eating loads of really nice cheese. Well, as I said at the beginning, as a result of your wonderful book, um, I have bought two pieces of cheese online and I'm glad that online cheese... Um, retail is doing oh, I, was, I don't know whether i've got it from a wholesale or retailer the fine cheese company i think i bought it from. very good yeah you know them i use um, them a lot yeah yeah, yeah very good. um and the second piece of cheese the first one was the kafili the second one was colston bassett and i have to tell you i am an absolute fan of that now it's just i, I bought I, I went completely overboard and bought a kilo with that by, by, by mistake <laughs> and when it arrived at the door and i opened the box i thought bloody hell i didn't mean to buy i didn't mean to buy that much so i had to phone around my neighbors and said anyone want half a kilo, kilo of custom bassett and bizarrely the first two neighbors i i spoke to said you don't like stilton i said really i said are you mad it's 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 a fine fine cheese it's delicious but then i found my third neighbor she couldn't get enough of it she woofed it down she absolutely loved it and i've still got a little piece left one of my favorite is it's, it's yeah, it's, it, Colston Bassett is one of my favourite cheeses in the world and one of my favourite Stiltons. I can't believe you gave any away. I could, I, I a kilo would just would just be Percy for me, <laughs> so to speak. Um, it's actually also amusingly, it's, it's an eighth of a wheel. Uh, uh, a kilo of, of, of Colston Bassett is an eighth of cheese. Make of that what you will. Um, 
I get when people say they don't like Stilton. I feel like it's my job to show them that they're just incorrect and to help. That they're them. wrong. Plain wrong. That they're wrong. And yeah. my wife's trying to help me because she's pointed out that I don't necessarily really think anyone else exists, and I think you're just bits of my mind, and that therefore you ought to do what I tell you. That's one thing. So the thing about blue cheese is what you really want is not too much blue in the cheese. Otherwise, all you taste is the blue. What you want, the blue is it. It's it's ripening the cheese. It's interacting with the cheese and making it more complex. And if you had tons of blue, that would be all you would taste. So when you see a Stilton and like that Colston Bassett has a lovely marbled effect. And, you know, it looks like a lovely piece of marble with veins going through it. Here's, here's, left here's one I prepared earlier. <laughs> I'm, I'm so into doing the Blue Peter stuff when I do tastings. It, it, like, here's all that's oh, left yeah. of my, of my well, Colston Bassett. There's barely any blue in it. Yeah, very yeah. good. Good eating. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have to talk about your cutting, though, there. You, you've yeah. cut your nose off. You <laughs> snebber, Steve. You're a snebber. A snebber. Yeah. What's a snebber? Um, when, when you nip off the end. <laughs> yeah, it's very bad. So here's what I think happens. I think maybe cheesemakers, if they're selling to supermarkets, well, well no, not even that. If you want a quick return, then you'd sell the cheese quite young. Then, you'd, you know, you'd get some cash, liquidity in the business faster. And maybe you make the cheese super blue to get that to happen more quickly. So you, so you, you pierce the cheese, let more air in, let more blue grow, and, and have that happening nice and fast so you can sell it and get a quick return. That young Stilton is quite hard and it's quite sour. It's got more acidity. And then as the cheese ripens, the acidity lowers. So I think maybe people are getting some quite young, hard, sour Stilton with a lot of blue in it. And if that's their first impression of it, that may not be to their taste. And should they be eating, this is a, a question specifically for Colston, Bassett and Stilton, but for other r- cheeses with rinds, should we be eating rinds? Ah, oh, no. Because I was always um, told as a kid, oh, look, you cut the rind off. Well, it would depend on the style of cheese. So, I, I personally, I don't eat the rind of Edam. It's waxy and... Yes, quite, that was my point. But no, there is a point in there, apart from me being an arse again, is that... Often it's obvious. So obviously you look at a bit of Edam or, or Gouda, Gouda, whatever you want to call it. When you, you look at the rind of that, you, you probably think, well, that's, that doesn't that looks more like wax or something. I'll cut that off. Um, so my simple rule is if it looks nice, try the rind. And my theory is this. We are all descended from people who ate the right kind of berries. So everyone who's alive now is descended from, you know, prehistoric people who are quite good at spotting what's safe to eat or not because the ones who weren't died because they ate the e berries or whatever. So I do, it sounds tough. But I do think there's a lot, you know, if you look at something that looks nice, worth trying. Another thing is no one puts toxic rinds on their cheese. That would be silly. It's never going to do that's a very good. That's a very good thought. Yeah, we should take Then you get into the more kind of advanced cheese eating, which is that for certain styles of cheese, you definitely want to eat the rind. So camembert and brie are part of a family called mould ripened cheeses where the affineur, the person who ripened cheese, has encouraged the mould to grow on the cheese and the mould is ripening, softening the cheese. So if you cut that off, you're missing a whole bit of the flavour and texture. And that seems to me a shame. And you're, you're, all that work that that affineur did, you're sort of, you're, you're, you're dissing out. In a, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you're dissing in the affineur, or her, of course. And wash rinds like Stinking Bishop, for example, you want to eat the rind because that's where a lot of the flavour is. With cheddar, the rind is just hard, dry cheese. It's like it's been encouraged to dry out and it forms a sort of protective coating. So, yes, you can eat it, but it's not really there to be eaten 
um, as a specific thing. So obviously the rind question is quite complex. My simplest one is if it looks nice, try it, but don't eat wax. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say the rind on this Colton, um, Colton Bassett looks particularly edifying and appetising, but it tastes fine. Yeah, and I, I mean, as I have matured as a cheesemonger, so to speak, I've got more and more into eating the rind of Stilton. You start to notice that the richest, most intense part of a piece of Stilton is right up at the rind. And then maybe you just think, well, I'll just try that bit. It's often quite malty. You know, that multi biscuits, the rind. With and a you bit of cheesemongers animal. give that a name, don't you? That bit of cheese next to the rind. and The breakdown, yeah. So the easiest way to visualise this is if you think of a camembert. So you have the rind, which is the rumpled bit on the outside. Then you have the breakdown, which is that little creamy, darker, softer layer where the rind is acting on the cheese. And then inside that, if you want to be technical, you have the paste, which is the centre of, of the cheese so now you're a proper cheesemonger that's the yummy bit right that's what i'm gonna bit. what i'm gonna do now is something i've never done before on the podcast and i said this to you before we started i uh, raided my fridge and i thought i'd get out all the cheeses i didn't even know i had any cheese to be quite if i had any cheese what i would find i'd get all the cheese and i'd show them to you so you could rip me apart and take the mick and say what are you doing with that load of rubbish because looking at it now <laughs> compared to what we've discussed and what's in the book it probably is a load of rubbish. Yeah. So just bear with me while I Excellent. grab grab my tray. Sure. Hang on. I feel like Blue Peter. Hang on. Have you got any double-sided sticky tape? <laughs> I haven't. Because if you haven't, then you're not. I haven't. So I'm just gonna. I don't need to tell you what they are because they're all they're all late. They're all in plastic bags. Should so... I guess too? What? Guess what I've got in my fridge? Go no, I mean you have to show it to me now. No, you. I'll right. tell you what. You guess what I'm Black likely bomber? to have in my fridge, and I'll, I'll, I'll we'll tick them off as we go. What's the first one I'm likely to have in the fridge? Well, you've got some cheddar, obviously, haven't you? Yeah, there you go. There's the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mature British cheddar, yes. Oh, it's got that number. It's strength four, is it? Yes, yes. Strength so, four. So one of my first bugbears here, it's, that's what that four is. It's like it's strengthening or something. Yes. Yes. So one of my main bugbears is people putting numbers on the cheese. Now, do you remember the bit in Spinal Tap? All the numbers go to 11. It goes all the, all the way up to number 11. All the numbers the, the loud volume, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it, but you could just make it a bit louder. No, no, you don't understand. So it's like that for me. It's sort of nonsensical. The thing is, there's no global standard on cheese strength. So to stick a number on it, it's just this arbitrary thing, personally, I mean. Sorry if I'm talking to the person who invented cheese numbering. So I kind of have a problem with that. My other problem is when it says mature, because I don't, I mean, I've never matured a piece of block cheddar in cling film like you've got there, so I don't know this, but I suspect that nothing much will happen to it because it's wrapped in plastic. The air's not getting to it. It's not in a cellar with some mould in the cellar and a few creatures around and, you know, exposed to the air. It's in a store somewhere wrapped in plastic. So I don't really see how it can become mature. So, so I'm a little bit problematic about the naming. I've no idea... The uh, it, it, it well, it just reminds me also. Yesterday, I was making a dish, um, was it yesterday? Was it yesterday, with which needed some red chili in it, and they also came in a little pre sort of plastic shrink wrapped bag from the supermarket, and that also had a number on it, you know, number three for the for the for the level of heat I was going to be suffering in my uh, in my dish. Probably more fun just to find out if it takes the back of your head off, you know. <laughs> I think so. There's a very human 
tendency to classify and to rate and that's fair enough isn't it you know it's like top trumps we want to say oh this is stronger or this is better so it's okay really yeah right there let's try another one now this there's no label on this one this is in a tupperware box or container because when i opened it it had a load of liquid or what do you, what would you call the liquid that i had to drain well off? i don't know but i'm going to suspect that it's either feta or mozzarella that's yeah guess. i think you, you, you got it can you turn the things, turn it over so I can see? Well, I, I'm going to use my fingers because it's my cheese. Yeah, I, I, I don't care. <laughs> you can touch your own cheese. <laughs> I can touch my own cheese. Oh, it's squeezy, is it? Is it it's, soft Oh, it's very soft and squeezy. Yeah, it's mozzarella. Yeah, yeah it is mozzarella. It's an interesting shape for a mozzarella. They're usually more of an egg yeah. shape. So mo mozzarella is pretty, pretty darn tasteless, but it has its function in salads with tomatoes and things, I think. Or what would you recommend it with? Well, so firstly, if you were to get what I'd really like to do, and I've never done is to go to Italy, go to a dairy and buy the mozzarella on the day it's made. Because my Italian friends tell me that often in these places, people won't buy it if it's if it's the next day, they want it on the day, because it's so fresh. When I worked for the dairy, by the way, anyone who's worked there, we just call it the dairy because we're so arrogant about it. So it's like, like there's no other dairy, it's just me or the dairy, which is the dairy. But anyway, when I worked for the dairy, we used to get it flown in and it would come in, I think, a day after. So it's about day, two days old. And that proper mozzarella from a proper artisanal producer like that, it's got flavour. It's really lovely. Less intensity than a two-year-old cheddar, of course, absolutely. Also, the nice thing about a really proper mozzarella is the texture because you tend to get a slightly harder skin and when you bite through that, it's, you bite into a softer, creamier centre, which is lovely. But yeah, I probably be, I would cut a piece of good cheddar and just eat it. I'd cut a piece of Stilton and just eat it. If I had mozzarella, I would melt it or have it with basil and tomato or in a sandwich. And I wouldn't necessarily just sit there Nosh it on it. It's not the sort of cheese you can nosh on, is it? Mozzarella, particularly, but it, but it is nice, as you say, with with basil. It's turning into a sort of foodie uh, show. This now, it I is, feel like, isn't it? Feel like what did you Floyd, expect, Ray, Steve? Floyd, Ray Floyd, no, but it's a bit like sort of Floyd, <laughs> <laughs> Floyd on cheese. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm going to show you this next packaged one. I'm going to not show you the label on the front. Pre-grated. Oh, that's Parmesan. It is part. Parmesan, Parmesan, Steve, Parmesan. Steve, 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 we need to talk. Parmigiano. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's a sad thing, isn't it? I'm um, sorry. So the best way to consume Parmesan is to buy a great big chunk of the, the hard cheese and grate it yourself, because as soon as you grate it, it's going to dry, you know, it's going to lose its loveliness. And I imagine they put, they'll probably put some sort of inert gas in that bag to keep it. I know, right? Uh, don't worry, it's inert. It won't kill you. Um, <laughs> it's not going to explode on me as I open it's it. It's <laughs> probably gas flush. Well, you know, with, I don't know what they would use, argon or something really inert like that, just to keep it kind of from drying out. I don't know about here, but I think in America there's some sort of permitted amount of, you know, cellulose rat droppings that you're allowed in your in your grated parmesan. Mm. I don't know. It says handmade, handmade in the, I can't even pronounce it, Cigarello Dairy exclusively for sainsbury's and it's strength strength number five you'll be pleased to know oh, it's number five strength number oh, five stronger than your cheddar excellent <laughs> oh, that makes sense um well i did notice that your that parmesan had its dop label on it de norman i can't pronounce it in spanish i won't in, in italian i won't try but it's a sort of protected uh source of you know of a traditional food stuff like the pdo system so 
Your parmesan is proper good parmesan that was made in a traditional way in one of these dairies, and then it's been grated. So, you know, you get props for that. It's not like, do you remember the stuff from the 70s in the, in the cardboard yeah, yeah. tube? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just didn't really taste of much, and you thought, what's the point? No, I didn't I bring that in. That's, that, that's in the cupboard. This is from the fridge. Oh. I, I, I like that. <laughs> You're like those guys that have all the bookshelves in the back when they do their video thing, so you can, you know, with yeah. all the fancy books on. That's it. <laughs> but, uh, but so palm, proper good parmesan is one of my favourite cheeses in the world, and it's another thing I learned when I worked for the dairy was that when you get that proper good parmesan, you'd eat it like a cheese board cheese. It's so good. You would want to have it on a cheese board. Yes, you want to cook with it because you should cook with good ingredients if you can if you can afford it obviously but having some proper good two-year-old parmesan it's like fudge it's like savory fudge and is amazing so i would rather not have the pre-grated because of the experience of having that the proper gear yeah so i'm not, not doing so, so I haven't well been too brutal to you yet no you? no it's, it's, it's all downhill from here on in i'm afraid <laughs> we got a few more sh- few few more shrink shrink wrapped cellophane nasties here <laughs> Feta? No, that's coming up. I don't know if you can. Oh, it's the ve- it's the vainest cheese in the world. Hello, me. <laughs> Very so good. I had to get a cheese joke. Very in, good. Didn't I? Yeah, cheese strength. Cheese strength number two. This one. Oh, it's got a number on it. So yeah. Like, how can you compare? This is the other thing I don't really understand. Is if you take halloumi and cheddar, I just there's not enough similarities between them for me to have them on the same scale of cheese intensity. I yeah. just. I don't, I'm just one. I'm just wondering if they're from the same supermarket. They different, different, um, different scales. I don't know. Yeah, you do see that. But that aside, the thing with halloumi is that the things, the stuff you get in the supermarket, is still pretty good because I think it's quite a simple younger cheese. The younger the cheese, in a way, the less complex it is. The less you can mess it up. So I don't have such a great objection to to industrial produced halloumi. No, I quite like halloumi. You slice it up, stick it in a pan, heat it up. It's lovely. So lovely, melted cheese. What is it? Melted cheese is just one of the best things in the world. There is an alternative. It's a similar, same, same, but different. It's called Bermondsey Fryer. And it's made by that bloke, Bill, who I described as Yoda, in Bermondsey, in a railway arch in Bermondsey, where he makes a number of very authentic traditional cheeses. That's not sarcasm. He really does. And he makes this Bermondsey Fryer. um, And it's the same kind of thing. You grill it or fry it and it, and it, you know, goes into that lovely meltiness. So I definitely try that. Yeah, amazing. Rubbery. I got two more for you here. Excellent. This one. That's feta. That is feta. Actually, I think it's going <laughs> going a bit rank. <laughs> Truth be <Well>, told. <laughs> so there's an interesting. I mean, I can't smell it, but so feta is traditionally sheep or goat or a mixture of sheep and goat. But I find particularly with sheep's milk, you get this really quite pungent, quite animal aroma, and so I wouldn't worry too much about it it just me oh it's getting a bit more sheepy because it's got a bit more a bit more sheepy more sheepy i can't think of another word you know you one runs out of descriptive terms you end up saying things like that's really goatee this is a combined sheep and goat's milk sheep and goat yeah yeah so it'll have some of that pungency anyway and um feta is another protected name so you can only have greek feta maybe cypriot as well this is greek and i think yeah, I think also that's another one. When they have these protected recipes, it's usually going to be a fairly good standard anyway. Even if you go to a supermarket, when you see those those you know protected origin or the little orange circle with stars on, 
You're on to a bit more of a winner. Good. So my my final cheese in this debacle <laughs> <laughs> is one I purchased today, actually. I don't know if it's you some sort of goat's milk cheese, isn't it? Soft goat's cheese. Yeah, Soft well, cheese. see how I'm trying to be nice to you because I'm hoping that you'll say nice things about me. Um, yeah, I mean, it looks like it's probably quite young. It hasn't matured a great deal. Uh, is it? Has it got a sort of wrinkly rind on it? No. Or is it, it just... It, does it look just like the feta? Just the feta. Just There's pure no white. rind. It's soft and very squidgy by the looks of it. Okay, so that's a fresh goat's cheese. Uh, so these are cheeses that are so young they haven't even developed a rind, and they're meant to be sold and eaten in that state without the rind. So it's going to be a bit more like feta mozzarella, and it will be quite a more delicate flavour, not a great deal of goatiness, a lovely thing to have in a salad. And the interesting thing, again, I would say is that there's less to go wrong in, in a young, fresh cheese like that. It's, even if you had a raw milk, um, handmade fresh goat's cheese, it wouldn't be a great deal more complex than the one you have. So if you're going to get something from a supermarket, you may as well stick... If you get something like that, you're not going to have such a big difference in, in, in quality. If it feels nice and soft and creamy, that's a good sign too. Well, now you so you haven't done too bad. You've you? completely destroyed me. Well, the, the interesting thing is... You suffered on the cheddar. I've suffered on the cheddar. It's not actually opened yet. I think I might give it away. <laughs> <laughs> Have, having now tried the other cheeses um, from the, the Fine Cheese Company, the, the Cafilli and the Colston Bassett, I, I, you know, I think I'm going to stick with those sort of quality cheeses rather than these pre-packaged ones. Because I feel I need to support you guys in your a in your area of need, b in my culinary tastes are, are improving, um, and to get the message out there because cheese is a is a wonderful thing. It, it, it's an ancient art. It's it's delicious. Is it good for you? Well, I think it is. I'm not a nutritionalist. One reason I think it's good for you is because a little of what you fancy does you good. And I think eating something lovely with a gorgeous, complex flavour is just spiritually beneficial for you. Um, a fellow at Neil's Yard Dairy, Jason Hines, who, gosh, what is he now? He's one of the big governors now. I think he's sales manager when I was there more. Um, he talks about flavour value, and it's a really clever idea. He says it's not about the pound-for-pound pound value, you know, how much is this a kilo. It's the value of the experience. And when you have a piece of Montgomery's cheddar, a piece of Colston Bassett, a piece of Gorth Caffilly, it's a much more fulfilling experience than having a piece of Tesco Super Mild Strength 1. Piece of crap you know. like I just showed well, you. Well, you know, I'm trying to be – I like to, you know – there's no moral judgment on this. All cheese is good in some sense or other, but but you're getting something more fulfilling. So in that sense, I think it's good for you. It's full of minerals. Um, fats are good for you. Calcium, all this stuff is good for you. So in that sense, you know, it's very nutritious. I think one of the other reasons humans developed cheese was as a concentrated and portable foodstuff. So you're taking milk and you're making it a more concentrated, portable form of nutrition. And if you need to go and do exploring or invade another country or something, you know, it's good to be able to take something, some food like that along. Um, you know, from the Brit soldiers still have cheese in their ration packs and they did in the ancient Hittite Empire in three and a half thousand BC. And the Roman army had was, were, were keen consumers of cheese in their rations. The other thing I think, when you have a really complex, intense cheese, you probably eat less of it. 
And I've noticed when I've forgotten to get good cheese and my wife wants cauliflower cheese and I go over the road and get some really moody corner shop mild cheddar or something, I'm constantly noshing on it as I'm cooking and I end up eating a load of it. And I think it's because I'm looking for the satisfaction that I'm never going to get. But when you have a bit of Monty's, that's what, off, you know, Montgomery's friends call Mon- call it, um, Jamie Montgomery's cheddar, you know, you know you've had something. You're probably less likely to have half a ton of it. Well, it's been very educational, um, very interesting and, g- and good fun as well. Tell us a bit about what you, what you're, you, because you said I've become a new, the, the cheese tasting company, is it cheese tasting yes, company? Tell us a bit what about what, what you, what that does and what you do there. Well, as you can imagine, what it does is it does cheese tasting. I would say it does what it says on the tin. Yeah. Broadly. Well, this is it. See, the thing about cheesemongers, we don't have a great deal of imagination, so I couldn't really think of what else to call it. Um, it works amazingly for SEO. It's always on the top of, because, you know, someone says to their PA, get me a cheese tasting, and they type in cheese tasting, and I come up. So, well, what I do, so when I stopped doing the retail cheesemongering, I became what I refer to as a freelance cheesemonger, a sort of cheesemonger for hire. And I, apart from helping out doing the odd shift with my friends, I talk about cheese for a living. Um, and I do these cheese tastings, mostly corporate events as the bread and butter. But I will come to your house if you have a group of mates who love cheese and we'll do a little cheese tasting in the house. And that's where I got started was doing these private events. And it's just the most fun ever, you know. We, we eat some cheese, we drink some wine, drink some beer, oh, amazing tell evening. some stories. And, and prior yeah. to lockdown, busy, I guess, you were doing... Yeah, it was good. It was... Um, I am not one of nature's businessmen. I never really managed to do any marketing. It just sort of happened. And when lockdown began, I put all my kit in the attic, all the crates and all the slates and knives and everything, and thought, well, may as well just pack this away because nothing's going to happen now. And I've been inundated with requests for online cheese tastings and i'm not complaining i mean it's great you know and and really sweet actually it's um obviously i'm a bit of a show pony and i do like doing the cheese taste and i do like performing i like telling people the stories and i like seeing people's faces when they have their first bit of really proper amazing cheese so so the zoom things are really lovely too i like to see myself as a sort of pastoral cheese care person i go out into the community and help people with their cheese (laughs) help people with their their mental health and cheese, yeah, che- all cheese. around cheese well-being. <laughs> yeah, why not? Why not? It's one of life's pleasures and luxuries, and uh, indeed, why not? So, Ned Palmer, A Cheesemonger's History of the British Isles, Sunday Times Book of the Year. I mean, that's an accolade. That's remarkable. Huh? I bet you didn't see that coming, did you? No, I've been flabbergasted by the... Um, by this lovely reception you it was okay i'm going to show off now so it was in the sunday times top 10 this sunday of 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 paperback non-fiction you know not every book in the yeah, world yeah, but still you know, sunday yeah. times top 10 is pretty um yes you probably saw me doing it in caps and <laughs> i think so so that was nice it's nice thing to bring up your mum and tell her <laughs> yeah. yeah slightly nicer than him i've i flabbergasted and i i mainly ascribe the book success to well, my fantastic publisher's profile, just huge pleasure to work with. My editor, Mark, Mark Ellingham, was just, he would do some editing and I'd read it. And I think, I can't tell where I stop and he carries on, you know, he's really nailed it. He's become quite the cheese person. But also, it's just the British, well, people's fondness for cheese. It just seemed to strike a nerve or something. And, and that's, it's really sweet. Yeah. 
But it's a cracking book, I mean, because if you like history, you like food, you like cheese and all the wonderful anecdotes that go with it, it's it's really good. And the personal and all the recommendations at the back of all the different cheeses as well. I mean, I'm just going to work my way through them, I think, alphabetically and just see. There's 50 cheeses. 50 cheeses. I think there's I think, there's, I think 50. There might be even 51. And the, I, the one bloke wrote to me and said he's going to eat his way through all of them. One a week. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> We, we, we almost want lockdown to go for 51 weeks then. Careful now. <laughs> no, 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 we don't. I, re I retract that statement. I retract yes. that. So did you, did you say that you've got another book in the offing as well? You're working on something else? So Profile are very keen. So the paperback of Cheesemonger's History has come out just this in October. So they're very keen for me to talk more about that. Obviously, I can't stop writing about cheese. So the next the next logical thing, having done this thing about Britain, would be to do it about another country. And obviously the country that comes to mind, if you think about cheese, is France, France yeah. Yeah. So, so that's my next plan. And while this one was a history, what I want to do with the French one is, is, to, is to travel around and more look at the kind of contemporary state of the cheese and also the cheese culture of region to region. What will the French think of a Brit doing a book on French cheese? Oh, you can't. Well, you, sadly, your listeners can't see me grinning. <laughs> you know what? Earlier, I might have said that I was a bit of an ass. Yeah. Uh, it amuses me that that. Well, I think I I suspect that what they will feel is here is a a foreign person, a Rosbiff, no none the no less, who who loves French cheese. I have done, so I did a rock and roll cheese tour of the Alps once with my friends from Mons Cheese, a wonderful French cheese shop in london and they took me to a bunch of cheese makers in the alps and literally you know in a car two cheese makers a day up and down an alp you know to a hotel to an and 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 one of the things that struck me is these people who are from families who've made cheese for generations very different but they didn't lose their culture so the, the, you meet people and that's what they've done for their lives so they don't think they're anything special they're just i'll just do what my dad taught me to do and then this guy would be, why have you come from London to see me? What, what? And I was almost crying. Some of the people I met, I was, there's one time I was literally in tears. This man said something so beautiful that I just stood there and unashamedly wept. And he's like, why is this? What's, I mean, he thinks, does he think I'm a rock star? And I, yes, I do. So that was really lovely. So I'd like to do more of that. Yeah. Well, tough gig. Somebody's got to do it. I, suppose. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what a, what a job to choose. I have actually, so after my philosophy degree, my first job was as a builder's labourer because I wanted to do something a bit more practical. And I have literally dug, dug ditches for a living. And I can literally empirically tell you that being a freelance cheesemonger is better than digging a ditch. I can well believe it. I can well believe it. I bet you never saw this career coming, did you? <laughs> no, not in the slightest. No, 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 no. Well, it's, as I say, it's been an absolute joy, a, a tasty joy as well. I've not done this before <laughs> on the podcast. It's been great fun. Now, I ask all my guests at this point in our conversation to mention one or two places in London, as being a London-based podcast, that are particularly personal to them. It might be cheese-related. It might not be cheese-related. So let's see where we go with this. Where, where, where are we going in London? Well, so it's dead easy, but I'm going to start with the less obvious, which is where I live in, in Rotherhithe, because it was the docks. And I'd never lived, I moved here about 10 years ago, when I moved in with my 
then girlfriend who became my wife and I'd never really been here much before and I'd always lived in what I thought of the cool places like Brixton and Hackney and Stokey and I thought oh, but, you know what's brother I've never even heard of it you know and I fell in love with it and it partly because you see the traces of the industrial and the pre-industrial see those amazing bridges we talked about walking around Mayflower those massive Victorian you know sort of industrial bits remnants and then that that i can't remember which king king edward the something's ruins of his palace so you, that thing that i love about london somehow more than any other city is the strata of history like living archaeology as you walk through it you just see it layers of it and also a feeling that the places somehow keep the character there that they've always had and so around here there's a really distinctive accent and when you chat to people, it's always their dads or their granddads were dockers. And, you know, that's all gone because of containers. But the, you sense a huge pride in the docks and the dockers and a culture and a community. And there's people around who still remember it. And, and I just, I love that so much. My favourite Bermondsey quote was a bloke in the bus, someone said, an old fellow, someone said to him, were you born in London? They said, no, nah, mate, I was born in Bermondsey. <laughs> and I love that. So Perfect. I really love Bermondsey. But obviously for me, an, an area of London that's so important to me is Borough Market because it's where I began my career. I wouldn't have written this book if it wasn't for Borough Market. And I wouldn't have written this, you know, if it hadn't been for going there and eating cheese. But also it's that same thing that there was apparently a Roman wine store there. So you can argue that it's been a market or a food place for at least 2,000 years. And it was the, you know, it's the oldest bit of London and there's always a market around the end of the bridge and and when you're on a stall working on a stall there apart from your card machine there's nothing different from you and and your ancestor your cheesemonger from 800 years ago and it's so a wonderful feeling stepping into that it's market. such a wonderful feeling and, and and also it's such a sense of community because it's a little bit rare in London it's a bit sad you don't bump into people you know all the time and even in the local areas that's less but when I walk across Borough Market, it takes me an hour to get across because I have to say hello to all the people who are still being people still running their stalls there. And there's just, for me, almost not, not really anywhere else in London where that happens. Oh, the other markets. But that is, is magic to me, that sense of it. And there's it's still a lovely community, the market stall holders. And just when I started, when I'd been on it a few weeks Someone's van drove into someone else's stall, Pickrim, and they lost thousands of pounds worth of handmade chocolates. Just an absolute disaster. And she'd been making them, you know, all week. And immediately someone grabbed a bucket and went round all the stalls and we all chucked money in. And, she, and but it came back to her and she hadn't lost a penny. And I saw that. I thought, yes, I'm going to work here. So Borough, Borough and Bermondsey. Two wonderful places in London. We shall add them to our ever-growing list of recommendations. Before we wrap up, how can people get in touch with you or find out? Obviously, your book, I will repeat again, A Cheesemonger's History of the British Isles by Ned Palmer. All good bookstores published by Profile can be found on Amazon and with Waterstones and everywhere else. How can people get in touch with you? What are your social media handles and so on? Well, so, you know, with that absolute lack of imagination, the company's called The Cheese Tasting Company, and I sometimes refer to myself with colossal hubris as Ned the Cheese. So if you think <laughs> of Ned and Cheese, yeah. it will not be hard to find me, the Cheese Tasting Company. And the Twitter is at Cheese Tasting Co. 
Um, shouldn't be too difficult. Just type Ned and cheese or that bloke who goes on endlessly about cheese. Things like that and you'll find me. Perfect. Well, it's been a uh, culinary cheesy delight to have you on the podcast today, Ned. Thank you ever so much for your time. Uh, keep up the good work and look forward to your your French excursion and what, what you bring back from Vive la Belle France. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. It's been a pleasure having you. I absolutely love creating your London legacy for you and the feedback and testimonials are awesome. But as it grows, so it consumes more and more resources. So I've joined forces with Patreon, a really cool place where you can show your love and support from just as little as $2 a month as a silver Londoner, right up to $300 per month where you get the crown jewels. Each level of subscription opens up a host of exclusive extra goodies, events, bonus shows and sponsorship opportunities only available via, via Patreon. I do hope you will continue to support what we're doing here and I'm so grateful for whatever you feel able to give. So please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy. That's www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy.